Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Stephen Hayes. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Reno, Nevada. He's an author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles. He served as president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy and is one of the most cited psychologists in the world. Dr. Hayes is considered one of the founders of acceptance and commitment therapy and the developer of relational frame theory. In this episode, we get to know Steve and how acceptance and commitment therapy can help alleviate human suffering. We learn how to develop what Steve calls psychological flexibility. We talk about the gift of acceptance and being open to our own history and how love isn't everything, it's the only thing. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. All right, Stephen Hayes, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm glad to be here with you. So I thought we could start by hushing the critics, and I'll play devil's advocate for a moment. If modern evidence-based treatments like CBT and ACT produce better outcomes, why do things seem to be getting worse with many forms of suffering, even suicide, on the rise? Well, it's a good question. And, you know, I think part of it's the modern world. We're putting things into our culture that we know are toxic. And I would say, you know, I would do want to say better outcomes. Well, you know, evidence-based methods when they're targeted well and so forth can produce better outcomes. The thing I'm more excited about is do a better job of understanding the processes of change that are involved so that we can get a little more focused because, you know, most forms of treatment are helpful, but why are they? That needs to be understood. And then how can you, you know, focus on the 20% that does the 80% and not get off into woo-woo land and things that may not really be helpful. And so that, that's more my interest rather than chest thumping and saying we're better, we're better. I think we're doing a little better job because of the science side of it, of figuring out something that would help answer the question you asked. You know, why are things going in the wrong direction? How do we get them in the right direction? And if you had to pick three just inside the culture, you know, that computer you got in your pocket is giving you constant exposure to pain, uh, constant exposure to judgment, and constant exposure to comparison with others. And we know those three things are toxic. And our young people are more than a standard deviation worse off than they were 30 years ago on all the things you'd think about, including the one you mentioned, including suicide rates. So something's wrong. So a big reason for this could be it's, it's harder to be human now than it used to be due to the phone in our pocket. Yeah, well, and yeah, and all the things that are around that. I mean, your four and five-year-olds see more death than uh, children in war zones did. I mean, it's constant and you can't protect it. I'm old enough to remember if you put a picture of a dead soldier from the Vietnam War in the New York Times, there was a, a, a controversy. What are you doing? And now you can, you know, people are live cast, stream cast, there's school shootings. Mm-hmm. And they'll put on their go pack and their camera and, you know, and you can't turn off the technology fast enough to keep your kids from seeing that. And then when they get in their social media and so forth, constant flow of judgment and comparison, everybody's, uh, you know, Instagram page looks way, way better than what's going on in their life. So obviously there's something wrong there. Of course, people's outsides aren't showing uh, their insides and you know your insides. So you've got that comparison piece and the heck you can hardly turn on any kind of main 
uh, flow of information without entering into a you know a cesspool of judgment. And it's all about how I'm right, you're wrong. Our our little group is right. That group over there is wrong. And you can pick your group and you can just stay there. Right. And you know those th- those are psychologically toxic things. Some of that even in non-human animals, like uh, comparison. But some of them, you know, we invented like our capacity for symbolic judgment and for projecting futures that have never been and be terrified of them. And so it's, uh, the, there's a flow of, uh, of fear and ju- uh, judgment and comparison that makes it hard to be human, way, yeah. way harder than you, than the older people listening to me right now, the, the world you grew up in. Yeah, I'm sure there's a pretty direct correlation between spiritual growth and happiness and phone usage. Well, I think that's that's right. You know, how to create modern minds for this modern world? Because you need you need your laptop, you need your computer. Look at what we're doing right now, dude. We're, you know, it's amazing what we're doing. I mean, you're two thousand miles away from me right now. We're having a conversation. Right. But <laughs> along with that comes a whole lot of things that uh, if you've got teenagers in your house, you know the dark side of it. Yeah. Well, it's just like how money can amplify someone's. Uh, you know, evil or or goodness, technology can amplify someone, you know, in the same way, their quality of life. Exactly. And any big technological change like that in the history of humanity has completely shaken our culture to the roots. And then we have to adjust it and figure out how to bring it inside this, uh, these cooperative primates that we are, figure out a way to have it actually serve what we really want to be and what we're kind of evolved to be, the kind of creatures that we are. Yeah. But uh, we're going through a change right now that's so fast where you know everything that's different is around you i mean you can have a person on a prayer rug uh, you know next to you you know that you didn't grow up with that i mean if you're sort of the mainstream i don't mean to singling out uh, islam as believers and so forth but i'm just saying there's so much diversity now and so forth we're kind of the tribal primates and there's an us and them thing. And we're in a place now where the us is all of us. It has to be because we're so interconnected and that's hard. That's hard. And you know, it's going to take a generation really, but let's just see if we can do it well enough that we don't, uh, you know, have a lot of uh, death along the way of learning a wiser way to be whole and human inside this new world we've created. Yeah. And then I think there's also an inverse relationship where when times get easier, life becomes harder, it seems. Well, we can, uh, yeah, you know, kind of, uh, what is it? There's a a lazy mind does devil's work or something. There's some sort of uh, something my mama used to tell me uh, that the basic bottom line was get busy. But uh, I think there is some truth to that. Although, my goodness, we have a pretty darn busy world uh, filled up sometimes with things that are not necessarily good for us. So Mm -hmm. I do think our spiritual growth has to be looked at. And you know, the ways that we've done it, I mean, if you just look at church attendance or what's happening to our uh, religious traditions, we're going to have to get, uh, you know, this more spiritual space into our lives in ways that uh, are maybe not exactly the way it was done 100 years ago or 50 years ago. It'll include that. I'm not saying that doesn't still have a role. I'm just saying, uh, you know, something like 98% of the human population says that spirituality is of importance and they've had spiritual experiences. So it's an important part of being human to, to look at that deeper sense of who you are and 
what you want to be, what is your meaning, what is your purpose, and being able to connect in consciousness with others. Right, with others. That's key there, right? It's we, we don't want to lose that sense of community. Exactly. And I think that's the kind of monkey we are. That consciousness is social. We were drawn into consciousness. We're, we've evolved to do it. I mean, you're the only primate that has whites around your eyes. You know, why? It's so that infants can see where mom and dad are looking from across the room. I mean, that's how interconnected we are. And you look at the eyes of a neonate, a brand new, fresh out of the oven baby, and they start dumping natural opiates in their brain when they're looked at in a kind way. So we come ready to connect, yearning to connect. That's just the kind of monkey that we are. And that's what draws you into consciousness and language. And But now in the modern world, I think we're, we're connected, but we're not connecting. And, uh, you know, the rate of loneliness among young people who are walking around with their iPhones constantly on and so forth, there's something different there. We need to learn to do, you know, to find a way to connect in consciousness with others, maybe in, in new ways. Sometimes I ask myself, is it that living is hard or just living in my head is hard? We live in a world that turns our own lives into problems to be solved. Do you think this dehumanizes the process of living? Big time, big time. Yeah, because you know what you're doing is you're taking a mode of mind that is good for a lot of things and you're turning it into uh, a tool that you have to use or focus on for everything, even down to the point of telling you who you are and what life's about. I mean, if you just turn your life over to that problem-solving part of you, which is put on steroids in the modern world. I mean, science is all about that. Technology is all about that. I mean, our schooling's all about that. But there's other ways of, of using, uh, you know, our mental capacities. I mean, if, if you were to see a crying child in front of you right now, you're probably going to say, wow, is the very first thing, you know, just a kind of opening up to how painful that is. If you saw a sunset tonight, you do the same thing. But you're probably, you're probably not going to say, you know, too much blue needs more pink. You know, you're, you're going to start out with wow. And we've lost our cultural supports for wow, you know, of just observing and appreciating and sort of being with the whole of something, including ourselves. So we start looking at, you know, our, our, our emotions, thoughts, memories. It's something to manipulate like a Tinker Toy set. And it's, it's not like that. It's more like a, a wow moment is called for appreciating how your history shows up in the moment and learning to sort of ground yourself in awareness before you sort of run off trying to repair, fix, change, direct. Yeah. Uh, it's fine for that when you're, when you're doing things that require problem solving, but you're not a problem to be solved. Your life's not a problem to be solved. It's a process to be appreciated. How do you do that? You need other tools to do that. Yeah. And we have to recognize when like, we always consider ourselves great problem solvers. Is it that, or is it the fact that we are sometimes just bored and we create problems to be solved? Well, we're seeing it right now, aren't we? As we sort of, uh, you know, shelter in place and so forth. And then I, if your mind's like mine, it starts giving me a thousand things that I need to do, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, really? Uh, I caught myself last night in a moment of uh, boredom because, uh, you know, I've been haven't left the house uh, even to shop for like 10 days or something. And I just caught how 
it was just torturing me to get going and do something that was not necessarily anything that I needed to do. And I think that there's a little, uh, a little sort of gut check there. You know, we, we've had a gut punch this time for some gut checks, you know, what, maybe we should take a little bit of this downtime to really look at how we've been living our lives and is this the way we want to do it? And are we just going to run around circles until we die or should we figure out a way to sort of create a place where you can be more peaceful, where there is downtime, you know, where it just being is enough. Just being is enough. And I think sometimes we'll mistake that urge to, to have an active mind or to do something when really our, our, our brain is just telling us, get up and move, have an active body. Yeah, it's true. That's a, we, we had a little family discussion last night of how we're going to try to bring our exercise regimens into our COVID uh, uh, schedule and so forth. I think it's a, a wise thing to do. I don't want to sit this thing out without, uh, without physically moving. Mm -hmm. So I want to dive into ACT. Why do some consider ACT the rebel threat to CBT? <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you're interested in the history of it, I mean, the behavior therapy was there first among the evidence-based therapies and using what we'd learn in the animal learning labs to try to help change people. And it's massively helpful. And then we still need to deal with language and cognition and the animal learning labs don't give you enough of that. So we kind of jumped into really more of a common sense theory of cognition, you know, that we shouldn't be uh, overgeneralizing or thinking irrationally or, and so forth. And so that didn't really come out of the laboratory. That came out of ideas of clinicians working with folks. And then along comes the so-called third wave. And uh, that was my uh, term for it of uh, really, if you want to be kind of uh, cynical about it, the hippies grew, grew up and uh, some folks are sort of more interested in noticing that you can look at thoughts and your relationship to your thoughts, your feelings, your memories, bodily sensations, your relationship to them is more important than the content of them. So instead of out with the bad thoughts into the good came in, you know, a wave of attention to mindfulness, acceptance, being able to observe, describe, and then the attentional flexibility to focus on what's important. What do you put, want to put in your life's moments? And the real reason there was kind of a sense of a war wasn't because we started one. It was because the media, when it saw the change happening, uh, they love to stir up wars. And uh, uh, with regard to ACT, it was written up in a time in a story in February 2006 by a reporter dead now, John Cloud, became a friend of mine, good man. But uh, he wrote it as a war between me and Tim Beck, you know, the father of cognitive behavior therapy. And uh, people were pretty upset about that. But, you know, Tim is actually a friend. I sent him my first doctoral student to be trained in, on internship. I, I was never about a war, but it was about, is it really the case that this detecting, challenging, disputing, and changing your thoughts is how change happens? And I think the answer pretty much now is known to be no, it's not. Even inside CBT, it's not how it works. And so we've learned better processes. And uh, now, what, 15 years later, everybody's doing acceptance, mindfulness, and values inside CBT. So traditional CBT isn't traditional anymore. And 
it's become actified and mindfulnessized and uh, it isn't just act there's a fruit nut seed mix of methods out there dbt and you know mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and metacognitive therapy and on and on it goes kind of an alphabet soup of new methods and but act uh, had a big start and uh, for that we we took the punches but uh, the war is over and uh, we're moving on and we're moving on in community my best colleague right now is a major kind of traditional cbt guy named stefan hoffman and together we're we're trying to pull the whole field towards a process orientation that will integrate all of these traditions based on what's most helpful so that's a little bit of a sciencey answer but i would just say it was kind of a war we didn't pick but we did fight and uh uh, the arrogant way to say it is the we kind of won, but we kind won more by attrition. You know that uh, people just started using these methods and seeing that they were important. Yeah. Well, before we got started, I was telling you that I had been aware of CBT for a while just because of my background in reading a lot of Stoic philosophy. And I remember one day we got back from a run at the firehouse, and I came across this random Twitter thread from an ACT practitioner about how he deals with his patients, and I just loved the approach. It seemed to just really resonate with me, and just seemed like I don't know a little bit more of an advanced level CBT. But I thought we could kind of just talk about acceptance for a moment. Why is this incredible gift often left unopened? Well, it's the gift of your history, but your history contains painful things. The, the root of acceptance has a word, septere, that means to receive, as if to receive a gift. It's barely in English. It is there. When you give a precious gift to somebody, sometimes you say, here, will you accept this? And, and what you're asking for is that willing taking in of something that's precious. What life is asking you to take in that's precious is your history. Because in there, that's how wisdom happens. You don't hop out of the womb being wise, but you get knocked around. And if you think about the important things in your life, the things that you really, really learn from, I bet you that list contains a lot of things that are painful. Mm -hmm. And yet the mind's going like, run away, run away, pain is bad. No, pain is not bad. I mean, you, you might feel muscle pain while exercising, you know, aches and stuff, but I don't mean injury. That's not bad. That's the, the stress and repair kind of process that is needed to build strength. There's, that's true psychologically too. And, you know, your mental strength, uh, you know, is built on this combination of strength and flexibility that comes from, you know, your actual experiences. So the, we turn away from the precious gift because sometimes the gifts are painful, but the wiser part of us knows. Uh, and that, that's one thing I often orient people towards is that the wiser part of you knows. It's only the judgmental part of you that doesn't know. I can uh, give you an, an example in one minute that I think I can prove it. Is it okay to do that? Well, imagine something that's difficult in your history that sometimes pushes you around okay you know maybe a big moment of embarrassment or something you did that you're ashamed about or something something but ideally something that projects even to the present day occasionally will poke up and then just imagine if you had to put your body in a posture that showed you at your worst with that as if you're using your body like a sculptor would so that people on the outside without any words might know what's going on with you on the inside. Mm -hmm. 
imagine what posture you'd have to put yourself in to kind of metaphorically show you at your worst. And then with the very same issue, imagine putting your body in the posture of you at your best. We've done this with hundreds of people around the world in every kind of culture, every ethnicity, and it's all the same. You at your worst is closed off. Your eyes close, your head comes down, your arms and hands come in, your fists may clench. You're in some sort of defend, fight, flee, fail. Fearful. Flop. Some sort of fear, exactly. You pull, pull in. You at your best, your head comes up, your arms and hands go out, your eyes open, you might put your, strat, your, your feet uh, more balanced. You, know, you, might, you might walk around. Well, what that's expressing is you know, you at your best is more open and aware, eyes open, aware, arms and hands out, open, able to move, able to do stuff, closed in, defending, fighting, fleeing, failing, that's you at your worst. And yet what your mind tells you to do when something really painful shows up is fight, flee, hide, fail. You know, the, no. <laughs> Thank you for the advice, but no, it's, uh, there's a wiser part of me, namely my own history, that knows that. So we walk people through methods that will help people open up by backing out of judgment, learning to watch your mind's invitation to avoid, and instead learn how to be more open to your history, not to wallow in it, but so that you can get with it and then move your attention towards what's here in the present and then start putting what you really care about into your life's moments. And that combination of being open, aware, and more actively engaged, that's useful everywhere that a human mind goes. And it starts with acceptance. Open to our history, accepting our history, and then reflecting on it and not just running from it. Exactly. You don't always have time to reflect on it. You know, first responders, for example, you know, that little instant of openness then has to be put under the attentional uh, focus of what's required in the present moment. But when you go back home and you sit in your chair, you know, you better find a place to open up to some of the things you might've seen that are horrific and are painful. Uh, or you don't, next thing you know, you're drinking a six pack or arguing with your spouse. It's, uh, you know, you, you need to find a place where it's okay to be you with your feelers out even though your mind is telling you it would be a lot better if you didn't have your feelers out. Right. Instead of suppressing, that's why we have debriefing after certain traumatic events or so-called traumatic events on runs. Well, afterwards we'll reflect on it instead of just burying it down. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, you got to do that gently. You don't want to throw people into the deep end of the pool. It's a process, you know, one step at a time. And I think we're, we're seeing a lot of that right now with what is happening with uh, the virus and so forth is, uh, you know, but in, we need modern minds for this modern world, man, if there's somebody who really has, needs to be almost little, uh, you know, baby Buddhas or it's people who are on the front line, but they're not going to be able to be baby Buddhas right in the middle of the moment. Right. But, you know, later on to be able to open up and to carry and to, do that as a, a dignified process of uh, empowering us to do what we really want to do. That's worth attention. That's worth skills. So, you know, there's a reason why mindfulness work. It's not just an Eastern thing. I said Buddha, but my goodness, the 
Christian mystics and the Jewish mystics, and they're all they're all onto it. Um, you need to find a way to back out of the chatterbox and and the judgment and the runaway part of you, and show up to a conscious part of you that, in connection with others, can hold even painful things and still come together and cooperation and community and move forward to what we care about. That is the human path. It's in all our heroes' stories. It's, you know, it's just there. You know, if you think of like the stories we like, the Star Wars or the, you know, the Lord of the Rings, they always have that same thing. You know, you're normal people challenged and stretched, wanting to say no, why me? Being asked to do something that's scary and horrific, but then they find strength within and often in alliance with their buddies. They step up, they step out, they step forward, you know, and they uh, put their values into action. You know, that's why those stories move us, is that we're all on that same hero's journey with our own difficult stuff. So to quote a real hero, Viktor Frankl, everything can be taken from man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Now, Victor says to choose one's own way, and you say there's a subtle difference between choosing and deciding. Choices are made by the whole of you and don't need justifying. Can you walk us through this? Normally, when we think of a choice, we think of pros and cons lists. You know, but if Victor Frankl had made a list of pros and cons, he wouldn't walk back into the camp. You know, it, it, he had to make a choice, meaning the whole of you selects among alternatives. So the way I define choice is selecting among alternatives with mental reasons, if you've got them, because you probably will, your mind is telling you that list of pros and cons, but not turned over to, dictated to, completely tied to that list, but instead allowing all of you to select among those alternatives, including the parts of you that are intuitive, that are spiritual, that are beyond words, that are gut felt, that are... Uh, you know, that are, that are part of your moral choices or how you want to be, that are how you want to write your life story in the sense of what you want it to be about. So when you come to that moment of choice, that you bring your whole self and your best self to it, not just your problem-solving mind. That's just part of you, useful when you're doing your taxes and useful when you're fixing your car, really horrible when you're dealing with issues of peace of mind and purpose. Mm-hmm. And so... I want that part of me, but I don't want to turn my life over to it. So that's the distinction. A decision is that logical, analytical, judgmental, problem-solving choice. Uh, The choice or or selection among alternatives, the choice part of us is the whole of us. And that's the part of us that gets to say what your values are, you know, what you're, uh, who you're going to marry, you know, how you're going to be you know, what the purpose of your life is. Uh, You don't just turn that over to the dictator within, that little voice that's constantly wagging a finger at you. Yeah. You know, that's a conglomeration of lots of things, and some of those things aren't things you control at all. They may have been, you know, critical coaches or teachers or parents or, you know, that, that, okay, I'm glad I've got, you know, that voice when I need it, but I don't need it to be my boss or master. Yeah. And knowing what your values are is central to your work with clients because without them, life can seem sort of empty or dull. Was there a point in your life when you made a conscious effort to sit down and explore your own values and goals? 
Well, I tell that story in a TED talk. If people want to see it, if they kind of Google uh, Stephen C. Hayes inside uh, TED, or it's a TEDx talk, where, yeah, I mean, I had a panic disorder and it took me down to the point where I couldn't give a lecture to five undergraduates in a class. I mean, it's not a good thing if you're a college professor to not be able to give lectures to classes of undergraduates, but I was just so terrified. Uh, and I tell that story about, you know, taking it down to the point where I'm waking up in, with panic attacks in the middle of the night thinking I'm having a heart attack. And somewhere in there, I, I kind of hit bottom and basically said, no, enough is enough. You're not taking any more of my life. You can't make me turn from my own experience, is what I said out loud at 2.30 in the morning at around uh, 1981, I believe, best I can figure it out. Um, and that changed my life. The values piece, I soon, I didn't see it at first, but I soon realized that, you know, I was close, had closed myself off to uh, domestic violence history inside my own family history. And that I had decided as a, an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old that I was going to do something about what I was hearing in the next room as, you know, furniture was flung across the room. And I'm thinking, is there going to be blood when I go out? And, uh, you know, uh, two lovely people, by the way, very loving, wonderful people, mom and dad. But, man, did they, could they get to a place where they were really frightening to kids? Yes. And, uh catching that and then realizing, oh my goodness, you know, the reason I'm a psychologist is that I wanted to do something about human suffering. I didn't know how to do it when I was eight. It wasn't safe to go out there and try to break them up. I saw my brother do it and he almost got punched in the face. And, uh, uh, but I can do it now. I'm not eight. I don't have to be underneath the bed. And so, you know, values are deeply related to our own pain. If, if you wanna see that, take something that you really struggle with that is difficult, that's painful, a real gut punch that life's given you, flip it over and think about what does that suggest you deeply care about? And I bet you, boy, you're right up against the values you wanna bring into the world. You know that suffering matters to me in part from that little boy who saw it and didn't know what to do with it and just cried underneath his bed, you know? And, but it, it's not obvious. You gotta sort of allow yourself to go in there. We have that acceptance piece. Then you gotta flip it over and see what does that actually suggest? And you'll find there's a values piece in there. And uh, you can find it in your sweet moments too, the times in life where you're really moved by it. And you can find it in the heroes you pick and the guides that you pick. You look up to them because of, values that they hold or or just the way that you want to be who's your best self but values are right inside that uh, capacity to choose and uh, you look at a victor franco moment uh you know that's uh that's really evident that his values choice was right inside the whole of them not turning away from the suffering that he saw and deciding that you know, he was going to, he was going to choose to put his life on the line in the service of his campmates.
So when you explored your own history of suffering, you found that what you valued most was alleviating human suffering. Yeah, that's it. And that's what I've spent my life organized around. I mean, there are other values there. If I, if I had a single word for it, it's trying to bring more love into the world. And if you email me, I'll send you back an email and it'll say at the bottom, love isn't everything. It's the only thing. It's the last line of that uh, TED talk, and it's kind of my life motto. And uh, what I mean by that is not warm, muscly feelings in your heart. I mean uh, caring about uh, uh, others and intending to alleviate suffering when you see it and being there for others. And, you know, ask my wife and you'll find out I'm, I'm not an expert at it but I'm learning and I'm stepping forward and I'm growing and I'm trying to do, trying to walk that path of uh, bringing a, 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 a helping to create a more loving, a kind, compassionate world in my own heart, in my own home, in my community. And, you know, that's a values choice. And I think it's, uh, uh, the kind of thing I, 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 you know, is there enough values in the world to really be there for all of us? I don't know, but why don't we try? And if we're going to try, why don't we first start by getting out of our own way? You know, by really liberating ourselves to begin to walk towards being the best self we know how to be. And that's really what the act stuff is about is that we've taken the time to sort of hack the mind. You know, we have, you know, engineers in the basement working on the, you know, the, the how human thought works. Uh, we've really taken the time to try to build a focus on processes that liberate people and bring the 20% that does the 80% because there's lots of things that could be helpful. We've got to focus on the smallest set that does the most. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And that's a great place to start. Let everyone know that they do have meaning. And you've said chosen values are the mental kryptonite to meaninglessness. So we can use act methods to turn towards that meaninglessness or the dinosaur instead of running from it, lean into the fear and the scary thoughts to liberate our minds. Exactly. That's, it's a constellation. You need all four. We, we think there's six processes that are really critical. And we have this core concept of psychological flexibility. You can distill the six down to three, and it's all really one thing, psychological flexibility. But there's these processes of openness, which is the emotional openness of acceptance and the cognitive openness we call cognitive diffusion, which is the early part of CBT, actually. It's, it's just simply learning to catch and look at your thoughts with mm -hmm. a little sense of perspective so that you, there's a person seeing them. It's not like your thoughts just making you see the world in a particular way, like wearing colored sunglasses, but more like taking the glasses off and noticing that you have colored sunglasses. Then you want those processes to come into the present moment in a way that's flexible and fluid and voluntary and to do it consciously. So you got this spiritual part of you, that consciousness, awareness, pure awareness part, but then this attentional part, where are you looking? Are you ruminating? Are you worrying? Are you open to what's going on in the present moment inside and out? And then that puts your feet on the ground so that you can turn towards your own choices, your values choices. What brings meaning and purpose into your life by your choice? What are the qualities of being and doing that you want in your life? 
And then how do you put that into your life in the form of habits? One step at a time, good old fashioned, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, practice and pattern. It's the way that anything happens, whether it's exercise or learning how to write, learn how to do your job or learn how to take your kids, you care of your kids. You want to groove it so that, you know, good things are happening even when you're not watching. And that's the committed action part. So those are six, uh, you know, acceptance and diffusion from this more spiritual sense of self in the now focused on values and creating habits that are based on them. If you do those six things, then you've got like a strong box with strong six sides and it'll, it'll give you the tools. We know like with first responders, we know with people facing, uh, you know, trauma, we've got potentially trauma inducing events happening worldwide right now. And I guarantee you, just a few years from now, we're going to have PTSD rates that are off the charts. And why? We've done the longitudinal work. We've caught what's happened when a storm comes in or a school shooting happens or 9-11 happens. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, we've actually been there collecting these measures and then tragedy happens and we know who's going to crash and burn and who's not. And on the other side of it, some people are going to prosper. They're actually going to do better. They're going to be more focused on their family, their friends, what they want to do in work or their spiritual uh, growth. Some people are going to crash and burn. What's the difference? The six things I just mentioned. If you mess those up, if any one of them is weak, you're vulnerable. If a bunch of them are weak, you're going to have a problem. And if you can strengthen those and maybe even use moments like now, where we're all stretched, but we also have a little time, we're sitting at home, sheltering in place, time to read a book, you know, time to actually go look at some of these things in your life. You can get yourself uh, prepared for the times where you're gonna need the kind of mental toughness that comes from the strength of values and the flexibility of emotional, cognitive, attentional, and behavioral uh, flexibility from this more spiritual side of you, those six things hang together. They're like a team. So it's worth learning them and then adding anything else that you find useful, but they're the big six to start with. Mm -hmm. If I want to use diffusion or learning to watch my mind, to notice its products and to use what's useful and leave the rest as it is. For example, if I want to look at a thought, like I'm feeling anxious or lonely in isolation and not be entangled by it, where do I start? I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just pitching a book, but if you start with some of the stuff, if what I'm saying lands at all, uh, you could do it for free, just Google it, go online. But uh, there's really good books out there that kind of walk through some of these methods. There's a quick one you can get. There's a second TEDx talk of mine so uh, um, called uh, Mental Breaks, Avoid Mental Breaks. Where the first break is like putting the brake on and the second one is like breaking you know, into pieces mm -hmm. where I teach 12 diffusion skills. And diffusion is in our wisdom traditions. It's in our deeper philosophical traditions of sort of backing up and noticing your mind. Uh, but we've in, uh, developed some pretty fun ways of doing it. And I show them on that TEDx, but I can give you an example or two. If you take something like, you mentioned a string of thoughts, one of them that sort of jumped out is kind of that feeling that I'm bad, there's something wrong with me. Uh, distill that down to a single thought and sing it to the tune of happy birthday. Mm -hmm. Just do it and see what happens. Uh, imagine uh, 
somebody saying that thought in the voice of your least favored politician uh, or in the voice of Donald Duck or uh, your other cartoon character you like. Uh, it's kind of playful things like that. You can play around with, you know, I'm bad, spelled backwards, is I'm dab. You're sort of stripping its power. You're stripping its power. Say the word bad over and over again, at least once per second for 30 seconds. Just try it. It's only going to take 30 seconds. Nobody's going to, you know, just try it. And by the time you're finished, that word has lost its meaning. So what we're living inside is this cage of words that is really like printed on rice paper, but it looks like it's iron, iron bars. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, these sound like you're making fun of your mind or ridiculing. In the, in the TEDx talk, I finish, and so that people don't think that, of thinking how old you were when you first had a thought like that. And I do a little exercise to picture yourself at that age and what you look like. Try to remember your own voice. Take that thought that's bothering you and have that kid say it to you out loud in his or her voice. And look what it pulls from you. And if you could meet yourself at six saying, I'm bad, my guess is you're not going to slap the kid. You're not going to say, snap out of it, grow up, what's wrong with you? You'll do that to the person in the mirror when you brush your teeth. But you're not going to do that to where it started. You're probably going to want to hug the kid, be kind. How about if you do that now? Do that now, right inside these difficult thoughts that you're having. Can you bring this kind of open embrace of how hard it is to be human, how easy it is to judge? Some of these words are so old and you didn't even say them first. You know, you know it could have been a sibling saying that if something wrong with you or a, a teacher or, or a parent. Okay, that'll echo down for the rest of your life because we don't have a delete button in our nervous system or in our memory. You know, if you've had a painful memory, it's going to follow you to life until some sort of brain injury or brain deterioration removes it. And that's not what you want for yourself. So you better learn how to carry that with kindness, or you're going to have to constantly run from your own history. How, how are you going to run fast enough to do that? I mean, you, you can't run fast enough. Your history will come with you even when you run. So diffusion skills... Uh, there, once you see how to do it, and in uh, my new book, A Liberated Mind, my older book, Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life, that was that one that was written up in uh, 2006 uh, as a war uh, with CBT, um, and a bunch of other self-help books out there from the ACT tradition, from many authors, some of which may be better writers than me, um, walk you through how to make up your own diffusion methods. Once you get how it works, you can kind of pull on Superman's cape. You know, the dictator within is more like uh, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. When you pull that curtain aside, you see it's, it's not the big fearsome thing that it shows up as inside your head. And it's definitely not worth turning your life over to it. All right. And people are tired of being told to be present and here and now. But can you walk us through what flexible attention is and why losing flexible attention to the present moment is harmful to our happiness? Yeah, though the present is where we live. So I think we get tired of it because it seems like it's purposeless, that it's just like enough already with the breath, you know. Or, uh, but really, the only thing that you're trying to do is not just follow the breath, follow the breath, follow the breath, whatever it is. Or in some of the work that I do with the children, for example, who may 
have a harder time doing that, just focusing on the soles of your feet for a short period of time, just 30 seconds or so. These kind of grounding are useful because we're living in the now. The way I kind of say that in workshops is I say, look around the room and try to see something that you don't see right now. Mm -hmm. And you can't. You're living in the now. But describe it. And describe it in such a way that what the word's about is 100% what you actually experienced in the now. And even if you said now, the now you're talking about is gone. It's a few milliseconds ago. It's not now. But when you're looking around the room, you're still seeing things now. So language and thought, you know, it's called reference for a reason. And that re means do it again. Ferry comes from the same root as a ferry boat. Or, or ferrying, uh, you know, your canoe around the rapids. It means to carry. Mm. And when you go into your mind, you have to carry the now with a little bit of a gap. It has to go across a river of meaning and symbols and language. And so we're, you know, the, the poets are trying to get us into the now with words. But, of course, the words are happening in the now, but they're about something. And even that word, about, means near but out. You know, it's ab out, it means it's not in. So when you're thinking, you're ab out, you're out. When you're experiencing, you're in. And so we need to do some practices that start with what you're in so that when the temptation comes up to ruminate, to go to the past as verbally conceived, or to worry, to go to the future as verbally conceived, we can notice those thoughts are happening in the now. And in addition, I'm actually in this now so that I can choose where to put my attention. And sometimes you need to worry when you're deciding where to invest your stocks. And boy, do I wish I was wiser a month ago when I met with my investment advisor. Because uh, you know, part of me said, I don't know if this is gonna be good with this, what's happening in China. Uh, but I didn't fully pull the trigger and I've, you know how many hundreds of thousands of retirement money is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, well, fine. You know. You, you, I want this mind of mine to be able to worry and ruminate when it's useful. Right. And that's what I was going to ask you. Is it okay to keep that rumination and worry in the background and not in the foreground? Yeah. When it's useful, it's going to go on habitually even when it's not. But giving your will to it, your choice, you know, putting your attention to it. Because it turns out attention is under voluntary control. You can narrow it. You can broaden it. You can shift it. or You can hold it. That's what all this attention to the now stuff is about. I mean, what is meditation about? It's mostly about practicing a f- forms of attentional regulation from this more witnessing part of you, this more spiritual part of you, in a way that allows you to open up and to focus on what's important. And so it's not an end in itself, it's a tool. And the, the tool is attentional flexibility. And so I like doing other things other than classic mindfulness stuff only. That's in XF too. But I'll give you an example. When you're listening to music, um, if you do that today, just for fun, spend a minute focusing on only one instrument in the piece you're looking to listen to. Sit with that for about 15 seconds, catch another instrument and focus on that. And then after another period of time, try to listen to both at once, but only those two, not the rest of it. Just play around with it. When I'm walking through an airport, you know, I like focusing just on the person in front of me and then expanding out and see, can I 
take in the 150 people I can see spread out over several hundred yards. And then when I do that, I can play around with it. I do things like I'll start walking zigzag unexpectedly and hundreds of yards away, people start changing their behavior because of what I'm doing. <laughs> it's like a big flow of water down a river or something. When it hits a big rock, all those water molecules have to adjust. We're connected. I'm connected with you right now. When this pod goes out, goes out, it's connected to hundreds or thousands of others. It echoes out. And so being able to focus on the now is not this self-centered thing. It's practicing for appreciating the wholeness of your life and the interconnectedness of your life. And to be able to do that in a way that fits what you're trying to do in the moment. If you're yeah. a first responder, you need to be able to narrow attention down. But then at other times, you need to broaden attention out. You need to be mindful of something that might show up unexpectedly, or you may be able to really focus on this thing that requires your full attention. Those are skills that can be practiced, and all this now, now, now talk are ways of talking about how to practice those skills. Well, speaking of first responders and skills, there there are randomized trials in the ACT work about dealing with care providers, including first responders. And as a firefighter, I was hoping you could say a few words on compassion fatigue or burnout and the reality that we're never really trained to deal with our own mental health. Well, these six processes that I talked about predict burnout. They're one of the most powerful set of predictors of burnout. And if you can flip them in the positive direction, if you can go from avoidance and entanglement worry and rumination from this story you tell about yourself and kind of forgetting your values and this letting habits be built around avoidance and self-soothing. All those toxic ones, if you can flip them in the direction I'm talking about, you know, you are, that's kind of the anti-burnout uh, pill. Mm -hmm. Those combinations just don't go with burnout. And compassion fatigue, I think, is a real thing when you only have part of the picture. You know, it, it, it's not helpful. Take something like emotional openness and connection to the pain and suffering of others. If you're not able then to deal with what shows up in terms of judgment or this pull to run away or the attentional inflexibility, so the, you know, the faces of the people who are suffering or that you may have even lost if you're there to save lives and you saw the last moment of someone right before they died and that face will uh, you know like haunt you for the rest of your life if you don't know what to do with it you know and we're asking our first or not our first responders maybe but we're asking our healthcare workers right now to do things that are going to create moral injury for them like to wheel that person into the hall without a ventilator knowing full well that's a death sentence right but you had to triage you don't have the alternative. You only got so much and tag. That's your job. You know, it's just like the soldiers who have to shoot children with the, you know, explosive vests on as they walk towards the checkpoint. You have to pull that trigger. But that child's face is going to be with you the rest of your life. And so you better know how to open up to the hell of your own history and to be able to find something in there that's worthy of your life that to, to see the values journey that you're on. And so there are randomized trials showing that, that they help. And I, I think some of the compassion fatigue we're, we're seeing is because we're being put in situations where compassion is naturally pulled from us, 
because we see the suffering of others. We're even being encouraged to sort of see that, but we don't yet have all of the skills in place to be able to carry that in a way that's um, uh, that that directs it, that a lot gives us a space to to heal, yeah. to hurt, and to heal, to to focus and to step forward. So, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why, you know, people gather who've been through this, and, you know, in the firehouse, folks are talking about what happened and so forth, is we need to do this as a social process. And we need to put into our human culture the capacity to build a more psychologically flexible world. Uh, uh, and, and I think we do that one person at a time. Yeah. So the, those randomized trials are, yeah, if you're not in one there, we know that about 60, 70% of what happens there can be done with a well-written self-help book. We've done the real randomized trials on that too. Uh, we've, we've done it with uh, many different professions. There's something like 20 randomized trials with uh, professionals in dealing with their work challenges, uh, mostly healthcare professionals and first responders teachers also and um, so the the tools are there and uh, they're worth learning people will continue to work hard not to feel when they don't know how to feel exactly so if act helped people with the ebola crisis it could surely help with the covid crisis right yeah and in fact it's being deployed you know i think uh, in uh, africa where we de help deploy it to help step up to the ebola crisis Mm -hmm. in, in combination with some social change methods developed by the late Lynn Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in 2009 for how do you create pro-social groups. That combination helped in Sierra Leone, and it's now being used in Uganda and places where they're dealing with tribal violence or with South Sudanese refugees who are escaping uh, hellacious uh, circumstances. And so, yeah, my uh, that's, that's what I would think the, the World Health Organization just did a really nice randomized trial with refugees showing that uh, act self-help done with cartoons and audio tapes because this was illiterate populations uh, did as well as uh, a self-help directed self-help here in, in the United States uh, with people who have all the resources that they need so if uh, South Sudanese refugees sitting in dirt can do it, we can we can learn how to do this and come together in community, step up to this COVID challenge in a way that leaves prosperity behind psychologically instead of uh, the tragedy of PTSD, suicide, depression, anxiety, and things that we know are coming. Uh, and if we mismanage it, uh, there's going to be a whole nother wave, not of the virus, but of the mental health costs of the virus. So time for our culture to be wiser about how to deal with potentially trauma-inducing challenges like this. That's right. So to summarize, we need to be fully open to our history, to be fully ourselves in the present. And I was hoping to end this with your quote that you mentioned earlier, love isn't everything, it's the only thing. So just a few more questions before we wrap up. If you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now, Stephen? Uh, actually, I'm reading an odd book called The Case Against Reality by an evolutionary uh, psychologist, uh, Donald Hoffman, uh, showing how uh, we've 
evolved in ways to sort of translate something that's probably more like that movie the matrix you know with the things falling down the little green mm -hmm. you know characters into something that looks like the real world and uh so it, it's just not taking our common sense understanding of things uh it softens me a little bit to consider you know maybe this is just one take on it and maybe the physicists of the future will actually have very different ways of thinking about how even the world itself is organized. So let's not be so arrogant that we we know, quote, know what the world is that we're living in. Let, let's try to create the best world we can for ourselves psychologically and be a little less concerned about being right about what is, a little more concerned about being focused on what works. Absolutely. So if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Well, you, you ripped me off, you know, with the Victor Frankl, but I, I would really want to see some of the ordinary, talk to some of the ordinary heroes, you know, the, the Oscar Schindlers, or the, you know, the, the folks, the Victor Frankl's folks who've made these heroic choices when nobody thought they were a hero. Mm -hmm. And why would I want to do that? Because I think that I, I don't want to be some grand and glorious, uh, you know, ego-based, uh, heroic, that's not interested in that. I'm interested in the ordinary choices that ordinary people make that make all the difference in a life well-lived uh, because that's what I want to be able to focus on and not miss when those opportunities show up in my own life. Well put. So congratulations on your new book, A Liberated Mind. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. You're on Twitter at Stephen C. Hayes and your website is stephenchayes.com. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and to connect with you? All those things will work. If you go to my website, you know, there's, there's newsletters and all that. I don't spam people, but, uh, you know, just click on yes, please send it to me when you go to stephenchayes.com. But if you just Google on acceptance and commitment therapy, I mean, you will find vast resources that are there. If you need a therapist, you can go to the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. And that's a group of about 9,000 people around the world, 28 chapters around the world that do this kind of work. And you can find somebody who can help you. But if, if you want to do something cheap or free, you'll find support groups, uh, an act for the public uh, group at groups.io or uh, Facebook groups and so forth, and a vast amount of free and low-cost uh, self-help books and ways of getting into the work and seeing if something I've said moves you, see if you can get the materials in front of you that'll help teach you the actual skills it needs to do these things. Modern science can help. Well, there's so much more that I want to talk to you about, so hopefully we can have a round two sometime. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to doing it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakova.